in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we open up the word of truth this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord through the use of 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins. God is faithful and just, righteous that is, means he always does the same thing every time, faithful and righteous, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all wrongdoing. Let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together as a body of believers, to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to study the things that you have revealed through the apostles for us, that outline for us how to live our lives, that give us everything we need to know in order to handle any and every situation in life, and that in your word we have a light that illuminates every category of thought and every category of activity so that we can see life as you see it. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand all of these things and see how they apply in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. We all go through testing of all kinds, all varieties, and whenever we do, it brings with it the temptation to try to solve the problem, try to deal with the adversity in ways that depend on our own wisdom, our own flesh, And yet the Bible says that true victory comes only from the Lord. As we go through these situations and face either situations of prosperity or situations of adversity, if we are not using the Word of God, then we are going to transfer that into stress in our souls. Remember, adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances in terms of adversity. Uh, outside pressure, if it's prosperity, it's positive circumstances, but it is the inevitable pressure of external circumstances on the soul, whereas stress is the inside pressure on the soul. Adversity and prosperity are inevitable. You will encounter one or the other or both at the same time. It's inevitable. Stress is optional. Stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is what circumstances do to you. The issue is always and ultimately your volition and how you respond to these circumstances, how you respond to these situations when that pressure comes. And one of the most obvious ways many times in which we uh, reveal how we are handling those circumstances is what we do with our mouth, how we handle it in terms of the sins of the tongue, what we say, or what we don't say, and that's why in James chapter 3, he shifts gears from talking about the priority of hearing the word and applying it to talking about sins of the tongue. So turn with me to James chapter 3, 
and we will briefly review where we've come from and set things up for uh, where we're going. James chapter 3, James starts off by warning these believers that not many of them should become teachers. You see, it's real typical of people when they go through various situations in life, especially young people, when they're in their 20s and 30s, they think they've really handled something. Then they begin to think they know how everything should be faced and dealt with, so they start teaching other people. They start volunteering a lot of information when they see somebody going through a crisis Immediately they start talking about how well they've handled it. And before long, arrogance takes over, and you can easily get into a lot of different sins. And the warning in the first two verses relates to teachers. Not many should become teachers because there is an extra responsibility with that. And along with that extra responsibility, there are also added, there's added discipline, added divine discipline if there is failure or sin in the process. And then James gives a gnomic principle in verse 2. It says in the English, For we all stumble in many ways, and an accurate translation would be, Because we all sin in many ways. Every person is a sinner. That does not change at the moment of salvation. Regeneration does nothing to your sin nature. Regeneration has nothing to do with your sin nature. Regeneration has to do with a new birth. And you must ask the question, what is born again? For that is the meaning of regeneration, to be born again. It comes from the Greek word uh, polygenesis, which means to be born again or second birth. And John uses the term, or Jesus uses the term in John chapter 3, to be born again using the word anothen, which emphasizes both a second time as well as uh, its source from heaven, born from above. But it is a second birth, but what is what is born again? We have to go back to the original fall of man when God created a tree, and it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and gave Adam a choice, and that choice was to, to obey God and to not eat the fruit. That was the only prohibition. In the Garden of Eden, God provided everything for Adam and Eve. You see, that's grace. God always supplies everything the human race needs, provides everything the believer needs. That's grace. That's why at the starting point of the Christian life, we have to come to grips with God's grace. We call that grace orientation. We have to start orienting our thinking to grace because grace is going to infiltrate every area of life. It affects your relationships. If you don't understand grace you will never be able to develop any significant love or love relationships in your life. Because everybody at one time or another is going to fail. They're going to fail you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to disappoint you in some way, either a lesser way or a greater way. And the only way to handle that without converting that into enormous amounts of stress is to start with grace. God dealt with each one of us in grace. Scripture says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us because we were wonderful, because we had scintillating personalities, because we were just so such wonderful, good, kind, generous people. Scripture says we were hostile to God, we were rebellious to God, we were at enmity with God. We had failed, disappointed, and hurt God time and time and time again. But God in Grace 
did everything that the human race required, provided everything the human race required. And that becomes our model for dealing with people in every category and becomes a foundation for impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. So you can't advance to higher stages of the spiritual life unless you begin with understanding grace. So God demonstrated that in the garden by providing everything that Adam and the woman would need in the garden. And then they failed. They disobeyed God and they sinned. And when Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he immediately died spiritually. So we have spiritual death, which is the immediate and primary consequence of and, and, and penalty for sin. As a result of spiritual death, you have all other categories of death, and suffering enters into the human race. Suffering, of course, is one of the vast avenues of temptation and testing. But with spiritual death, man loses his human spirit. Man was originally born with a, a human body, human soul, who was originally created with a human body, human soul, and a human spirit. This is called trichotomous, a long word that means three parts. When Adam sinned, he lost his human spirit. The human spirit is that immaterial part of man that gives, allows him to have a relationship with God and to understand spiritual things. Because he had a human body and human soul, the New Testament calls him a soulish man, and the word there is from the from the Greek word uh, suke uh, or yeah suke soul is sukikos. He's called the sukikos man in First Corinthians chapter two fourteen. It's translated lousy translation, usually translated a natural man. There it says the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned, and that tells us that in order to understand Anything about God and to understand spiritual truth, you have to, you can't just be a soulish man. That natural man is a soulish man. You have to have a human spirit. So what is born again, what is regenerated at the instant of faith in Christ is this human spirit, which enables us once again to understand the things of God. That's what regeneration is. Regeneration doesn't have anything to do with your sin nature. Regeneration has to do with your relationship with God. Now, this is a schematic that has been developed to explain what the sin nature looks like and its various aspects. You have two areas, opposite poles, the area of strength, the area of weakness. The area of weakness describes that area of your life where you, are, you most easily succumb to sin. The area of weakness produces sins in three categories. Overt sins, sins of the tongue, and mental attitude sins. For the most part, mental attitude sins are the, uh, underlying, are the sins that underlie sins of the tongue and overt sins. The opposite pole is the area of strength. These are the areas in your life where you are less likely to sin. So in these areas, you produce good works. The Bible calls them dead works. We call them that human good as opposed to the good that God produces, which is divine good. So that's the area of strength. And the Scripture says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. 
God rejects all of our human good, no matter how wonderful we may think it is, no matter how helpful it is, no matter how good it might be in a human arena. And there's nothing wrong in, in one sense with human good. There's nothing wrong with charity. There's nothing wrong with these things in one sense. They just do not gain the approval of God. People are not going to go out and impress God by anything they do. So it's not inherently wrong to get involved in certain altruistic projects, to get involved in community projects, to help out things. That's not inherently wrong. It just isn't impressing God and has nothing to do with your spiritual life. That's just human good. And the motivator of the sin nature is the lust patterns. You have a variety of lust patterns. Uh, materialism lust, power lust, approbation lust, sex lust, money lust, all kinds of lust patterns which motivate the believer. And every believer tends to lead their life, tends to go in one of two directions, either to the left in terms of asceticism and legalism. Asceticism is the idea that somehow I'm going to sacrifice, somehow I'm going to give up things, and that's going to impress God. That's usually linked in some way to legalism. It's based on self-righteousness and always leads to moral degeneracy, just as the, like the Pharisees. And Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombstones. Now, on the outside, they looked good. On the inside, they were dead men's bones. The other trend is towards antinomianism, licentiousness, and lasciviousness. And of course, this is the strong party crowd that really likes to have a good time. And often they go too far, and they end up in immoral degeneracy. They... Um, It's a lot more fun to associate with that crowd because they don't walk around with their nose in the air and they know they stand in need of grace. That's why I think Jesus usually associated with uh, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the other sinners because they understood that they were failures in the spiritual life and that they had nothing to stand on in terms of their own merit. And so they they were not hiding behind various masks and pseudo-spirituality. And that's why it continually came in conflict with the Pharisees and the religious crowd is because they thought that they were good enough to impress God. I'd much rather have a church of people over here than a church... In fact, I've had this crowd. (laughs) I've had a church made up like... And and frankly, you just don't want them. They're they're, They're not really positive to doctrine at all because there's no grace orientation there. But we're going to do a detailed study of the sin nature on Sunday morning in Galatians, so I'm not going to uh, give that away now. But right now, we're just going to look at this one category of personal sins, sins of the tongue, which is James' focus here. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we saw last time that James gives uh, two illustrations to show how important self-mastery is in the arena of what you say. It's important to control your mouth. Because when you let your mouth run away with itself in the midst of testing, you will say all kinds of things that not only will heap discipline on yourself, but you will say things that will hurt other people's feelings, that will cause all kinds of problems. Sometimes you will say things in terms of gossip that might be true about somebody else, but in the end it hurts you, it brings divine discipline on you, but it also creates long-term problems. And 20 minutes later you might uh, regret that you said that, but now it's out. Somebody else is going to repeat it, and it's just going to create all kinds of damage along the way. So we have to control our mouth, especially in times of testing. 
And this is very difficult. And James shows through his illustrations of a horse, first of all, this, this huge animal, especially if you've ever seen a draft horse like a, um, a Belgian plow horse or one of the Clydesdales and seen how enormous those horses are, how powerful and strong they are. Yet you can control all that strength with just this small metal bit placed in the mouth where it puts the right pressure on the soft uh, gum, gum of the mouth and inside lips, and you can control them and move them in any direction you want. The same comes from, the same is true from the analogy with the ship. The wind is very powerful and very strong, and when it catches the sails and fills them out, it can move that ship very rapidly across the water, and yet you can control everything with just a very small piece of wood that is down in the water called a rudder. So the tongue is likened to both the bit in the horse's mouth and the rudder of a sailing vessel because it just takes a small instrument to control the whole. And his analogy is that if you can control that small instrument in your mouth, then you can control almost every other arena of life. And remember, self-discipline, self-mastery doesn't just happen because you pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and say, I'm going to have self-discipline. There are a lot of people out there who have incredibly disciplined lives, and it doesn't do anything for them spiritually. It's not self-discipline done from the power of your own innate human ability. This is a self-mastery, a self-discipline that comes as a result of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in your life through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the spiritual life is so important because it is a supernatural life that demands a supernatural means. And that supernatural means, as we have seen in our study of Galatians, is God the Holy Spirit. This is unique for this church age. Never before in human history has so much been given to the everyday, ordinary believer. And one of the things that is given in this age to the everyday, ordinary believer is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is involved in filling us, and we've seen in our study there that we are to be filled. It's the filling by means of the Holy Spirit. He, is, he, he, uh, he teaches us. He recalls doctrine to our mind in the midst of crisis. And it is through that doctrine, which is variously described in Scripture as truth, doctrine, the Word of God, the Word of truth, all of these are synonyms, that when doctrine gets into your soul and you have learned it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then that is usable doctrine. And we have seen that the Bible calls that epinosis. And it is that usable doctrine that God the Holy Spirit uses to mature us and advance us to spiritual maturity. We don't do it ourselves. The analogy is from eating. When you eat food, you exercise your volition until you swallow. From that point on, automatic processes take over to break down the food, digest the food, metabolize the food, convert it into energy, move it out to the, to the various cells, brain cells, muscle cells in the body, and then volition takes over as you decide how to utilize that energy. Well, this is what happens in the spiritual life. You exercise your volition to come to the table and eat doctrine. That's what you're doing right now. You're sitting at the table and I'm spreading it out before you. 
and you have to concentrate on it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. You decide whether or not you believe what the Word of God says, and you accept that. That's swallowing. And as you swallow it, then the Holy Spirit takes over. And He is the one who, in terms of this imperceptible process, takes the meat of God's Word, the meat and the milk of God's Word, and breaks it down and distributes it in your mind. And He is the one who will bring it back to mind in terms of recall, reminding you of what you have learned, showing you how to apply these principles in what you think and what you do, so that you can handle the various tests of life. And then you have to exercise your volition once again, when the Holy Spirit has brought this to mind, to apply it in whatever the situation is. So again, this is the supernatural means for the spiritual life. And one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is self-discipline, self-mastery. And so this, the control of the tongue does not come because you walk out of Bible class and say, I've got to watch my mouth. It comes as a result of the fact, of course, that's part of it, but it's part of the, primarily because you are going to be learning doctrine as frequently as possible, and over the course of time, as more and more doctrine is stored in your soul, you will see the consequences of that in terms of self-mastery over the tongue. So we saw all of that last time, and we came down to verse 5, where James pulls it together and says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a force. This shows the danger and the damage that can come from the tongue. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by a small fire. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. So he paints a very harsh picture of the sins of the tongue. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, and the tongue is set among our members, that is, the members of the body. It's, it's one of the other organs in the body, along with your, your skin and your eyes and your nose and your internal organs. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And the last time we saw that this is not the word Hades, it is the word Gehenna. Looks like this in the Greek. Comes from the Hebrew that meant G-E and then the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenom was valley outside of Jerusalem where for hundreds of years, originally it was the site of the Moloch worship where they would sacrifice their children to the fires of Moloch in terms of idol worship. But after that was destroyed, after the return to the land, after the Babylonian captivity, then this was the area where they took all the garbage from Jerusalem, dumped everything out there, so it was always on fire, and it became a, a metaphor for, for the lake of fire. Now, talks about, here he says that our entire life is set on fire by hell, so this relates this to the sins of the tongue and their damage, which has its ultimate source in terms, as all sin does, ultimately in the original fall of Satan. So it's, it's from the sins of the tongue just to point out how evil these sins are. Verse 7, explanation. Because every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tame. Now it doesn't mean every single species, but it's talking about every category. 
Because not every, this is not a statement that's true about every single individual animal, but it is true about every category of species. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. Notice three times you have the word tame, and this is not a good translation. The Hebrew is damadzo. D-A-M-A-Z-O. And damadzo means to control, to subdue, to restrain. It doesn't mean to tame. And just about every category of animal in one time or another has been not domesticated. Tamed has that idea of domestication. Never domesticate a, a cheetah or a leopard or a lion or a tiger. But they have been subdued. You go to the circus, you can see the lion tamers subdue and control the big cats. Um, so Damazo has the idea of restraint or control. Every species of, of animal at one time or another has come under the control of a human being. But in contrast to this, in verse 8, no one, and this again is a gnomic present tense of the verb. Now, it's a present active indicative, and it's a gnomic present. Now, this means that it is a present tense used to state a, a universal truth. Just as uh, uh, James did this back in verse 2 when he says, We all sin in many ways. He's using a gnomic present again in verse 8, saying, No one can tame the tongue. No one. From the moment you are saved until the moment you die, you are going to have a problem with this in your life. You are going to have, you are freed at the moment of salvation positionally from the power of the sin nature. But you will always struggle with the sin nature. You will never reach sinless perfection. And at some point, you will always struggle with sins of the tongue. Even if those aren't your particular area of weakness, you will never have complete control of the tongue. Nevertheless, the goal of the Christian life is to advance spiritually and to have as much control of the sin nature as possible. Remember, Romans 6 says that we are to put to death the deeds of the sin nature. So here we have the gnomic principle at the beginning of verse 8. No one can tame the tongue. It's never You're never going to reach a, an arena of sinless perfection when it comes to sins of the tongue. Therefore, don't go out there and the next time you catch yourself gossiping or telling a lie or some other sin of the tongue, don't go into a guilt trip. Don't start flagellating yourself, thinking you're going to impress God with how sorry you are that you just uh, committed a sin of the tongue. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sin, move on, and deal with it. But we are always going to have this problem. That doesn't justify it. It means that we have to face reality. There are too many Christians who get caught up in self-righteous attempts to try to get sin out of their life, and they... Uh, they just uh, get caught up running a guilt trip all the time, and that's a sin. Because guilt is basically saying that Christ didn't pay the penalty for my sin, so now I've got to impress God with how sorry I am that I just committed this sin. So, uh, don't get caught in that trap. Remember, we have a grace recovery procedure, and that's what it's, what it's there for. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And you just see as you read through these passages the, the tremendous imagery 
that James is using in order to grab our attention so that we start paying attention to what we say. It's so easy for us to slip into various categories of gossip, slander, and to use our tongue to run people down. When we get mad at somebody, we immediately say something uh, cutting or insulting. We uh, do that with people we love as well as people we don't care too much about. And James is saying this is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And then in the next three verses, or really down to verse 4, he's going to show how the tongue operates in terms of revealing what's happening in the soul. Here's the soul. You have your self-consciousness. That's your identity. When you look in the mirror, you know who you're looking at. You're not like an animal that just sees another animal. You have a personal identity. You have a mentality. You have emotion. You have volition. And you have conscience. Now, in your mentality, you have stored either human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. Now, I'll give you a hint. If you're a human being born with a sin nature from just about the instant your brain starts to uh, assimilate information and starts to store information from that point until you start learning any doctrine after you're saved, the only thing that's there is human viewpoint, and you're assimilating, you're categorizing and organizing all the information in life based on arrogance. You think that you can resolve and understand all there is in life on the basis of your own finite experience. And that's true about every single human being until they are saved because they don't have a human spirit and therefore they do not understand the big picture from God's perspective. And if you're not looking at life from divine viewpoint and you can't as an unbeliever, then your only alternative is human viewpoint. That's why the process of sanctification is portrayed as renovating your thinking. It's a very strong word in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to completely renovate and reshape our thinking. We have to go in and we have to do a major overhaul of everything, including the foundation. Now, what's hard is that that foundation has to do with a lot of unstated assumptions and presuppositions about life, things that people very rarely pull out into the open and think about and talk about. And yet, that's the process of the spiritual life. That's one reason we live in an era today, just to give a very simple illustration, we live in an era today when people are, are general thinking is shaped by emotionalism, pragmatism, and mysticism. This characterizes the average man on the street. Now, that doesn't mean that he understands these words. It doesn't mean that he can even pronounce these words. He may have never have heard of Immanuel Kant, may have never heard of Kierkegaard, he may have never heard of someone like uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher or Karl Barth, yet he exemplifies their philosophical and theological positions by every choice that he makes. In emotionalism, we determine what is right by what makes us feel good. That becomes the ultimate criterion. In pragmatism, we determine what's right by what works. And in mysticism, the ultimate authority in life is our own internal sense of what's right or wrong, 
which is intuition. Now, that's the average American. Now, this guy gets saved. But rather than challenging all of his unstated presuppositions about emotionalism, pragmatism, and mysticism, he just goes to a church where all of this is going to be there. So he's going to go down to a, a probably a charismatic church, although we're, we're, uh, so many other churches are getting into this today that, that you can't just lay it all on the charismatics. Almost every other church in America is doing this. And all of a sudden he goes there and he hears this wonderful glowing sermon and he, they, sing, they sing music that has a great beat to it, and there's a band up front. It doesn't matter today whether you're charismatic, whether you're congregational, whether you're Presbyterian, Baptist, Episcopal, or Roman Catholic. Everybody's buying into what's called uh, uh, Christian, what, what, the Christian choruses. And they have the, uh, you go into churches, and the way they do worship now is they have a worship leader. In other words, the worship leader is no longer the pastor who understands the Word of God, has studied the original languages, and is able to feed you doctrine so that you can live your life for God. The worship, worship has nothing to do or very little to do with the trained pastor-teacher who communicates the Word. Worship is now what you do when you sing. And you come in and you spend 30 or 40 minutes singing these songs and you've got a worship team up there. Usually you have some very nice-looking blonde or brunette who has uh, got a great soprano voice, and she's doing the lead singing. Then you've got a, a couple of guys on the drums and another guy on the keyboard and a guy on the guitar, and they're just having a wonderful time. And so everybody's clapping, and they're, they're tapping their toes, and they're singing great songs, and some of them are Scripture. They just take, take words right out of the Psalms, and they put them to music. And it sounds great. But the bottom line is, by the, after 30 or 40 minutes, boy, you're jazzed and you're feeling good and all that music has been uplifting and it just, just puts you in a great mindset. And then some guy stands up there and tells a couple of good stories and quotes of a couple of verses from the Bible and prays and everybody goes home and you feel good. So you think, boy, I must have worshipped God. And not only that, but everybody seems to like this, so the church is growing. And now instead of 50 people, it keeps, they keep doing this. And a year later, they have, they have 200 people there. And a couple of years later, they have 400 people there. So it's growing. Well, God, we're growing, so God must be blessing us. Therefore, it works. So this must be the Holy Spirit. Praise God for making our church grow. Now, now, of course, they're, they're not teaching a doctrine of the Trinity. They're not teaching hypostatic union. They're not teaching substitutionary atonement. In fact, they're teaching lordship salvation, so they're in complete heresy and nobody's getting saved. It has nothing to do with doctrine. It has everything to do with their human viewpoint systems of thought. And then you ask them, well, how do you know this is really right? Well, it just I just know it is. Well, have you... Have you taken the time to study the Scriptures? Have you done a theology of worship from the Bible? Have you looked at passages like John chapter 4 where Jesus said, those, those who worship Me must worship Me in the Spirit, that is, by means of the Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and by means of truth, that is, doctrine. 
And that unity is not unity in terms of we all just love one another in the brotherhood of Christianity and the fatherhood of God, which is the old liberal slang for, for God. He was everybody's father. And we all just put our hands around each other and turn to the person next to us when the song leader says, turn to the person next to you who you don't know and you probably don't like and say, I love you, brother. And it's always this very superficial kind of Christianity that just drives me nuts. And yet, most people in America think it's just wonderful. Maybe So it is, right? See, this is what I'm saying. The average person has his thinking undergirded by a lot of philosophical concepts. Now, that doesn't mean they're, they're, that he knows what they're called. It doesn't mean that he knows how they're related to one another. It doesn't even mean that he's consistent. Because, see, the thing about mysticism is that mysticism says that the worst thing in the world is rigorous logic. So the best thing in the world is to be inconsistent. So, hey, isn't it great? We're just going to have a wonderful time and just feel good about it. Well, this guy gets saved and, and he doesn't have to renovate his thinking because he can go to a hundred different churches and he can feel quite comfortable without ever changing the basic assumptions of life. But if you want to get anywhere in the spiritual life and really learn to think correctly about reality, you have to renovate your thinking. You have to learn some things. And part of that is you have to learn what some terms mean and you have to learn what they what their characteristics are so that you can then take some time to go home and take your own thinking and put it under the microscope of Bible doctrine, which you're taught here in Bible class, and then you begin to look and see how these uh, various modes of thinking have, have infiltrated your life from day one. Because frankly, that wonderful seventh grade English teacher that you, you had and you just thought was so nice, well, she was a mystic. And she was probably having you make little dolls out of that were Hindu representations of Mother Earth, so that you could you could pray to that little or meditate with that little Hindu god, so that you could help the environment in America. And so you don't didn't realize it, but you just picked up a whole boatload of of Eastern religion in the process of sitting in that English class, especially reading some of the things that she had you read and write little reports on. So we've all picked up ideas from all kinds of people over the age, over, over the course of our time. And that's why it's really a, a lifelong process to learn doctrine. People think, well, I can understand the Bible in uh, 12 easy lessons. I think there's a book like that. How to understand the Bible in 12 easy lessons. Well, I've been working. I wish I knew that. Maybe I ought to buy that book. <laughs> I've been working on this for 20 years, and there's a lot of things I still haven't quite quite grasped. So it's a lifelong process, and it's an exciting process, but it's going to set you against 98% of the people in the country because most people don't want to think. They don't want to think about their thinking, and they certainly don't want to let the Word of God dictate how they're supposed to think. And as soon as you start doing that, you're going to find yourself in the midst of one of the most incredible battles in all of history, and that's called the angelic conflict. And it is a cosmic conflict that not only involves the human race, but also involves the the angels, both the fallen angels and the elect angels. And how we think is more important 
than anything else we do in life because the scripture says everything starts from your thinking. And that's why over and over again the Apostle Paul uses words like thinking and mind and mentality to describe the the essence of the Christian life. We have to think God's thoughts after him. So here you are. This is your soul. You have self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. And your mentality, you've got stored all kinds of human viewpoint concepts and over here all kinds of divine viewpoint concepts from doctrine. And every time you hit a test, you have to make a volitional decision, positive to doctrine, negative against. You're either going to operate on divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. Over here, the mechanism ultimately is the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Over here, all human viewpoint is tantamount to walking by me according to the flesh, which is the sin nature. This produces nothing but misery and unhappiness. This is the only path ultimately to, to eternal to happiness and to maximum glorification of God. Now, what James says is that in this scenario here, the believer, you're going to produce one of two things. And your tongue is going to show which of these is dominating the mentality of your soul. Look at verse 9. The tongue is a restless poison. He says, with it, that is, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men. Now, I don't want anybody to raise your hand. But how many times have you been in the middle of thinking about doctrine, thinking about a scripture verse, and you're driving down the road and somebody cuts in front of you and you just let them have it? Well, I know that gets convicting, so let's move on. (laughs) With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So right here we understand that one of the basic issues underlying the prohibition to slander and gossip, etc., is the fact that everybody, whether they're believer or unbeliever, every human being has been made in the image and likeness of God. Adam was made in the image of likeness of God, as was uh, Isha in the garden in Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 27. But with sin, the image was tarnished wasn't destroyed, it wasn't completely removed, but it was tarnished. And because every human being, even though fallen, is in the image of God, we are to treat them with honor and respect. That is the fundamental principle underlying respect for human life in all legislation in that arena. Verse 10, he gives a second illustration. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Mandate of prohibition. Imperative of prohibition. It ought not to be this way. Does a fountain... Then we get two illustrations. One from a fountain. One from a fig tree. Does the fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? In other words, you go out in your backyard and you sink a shaft to dig a well. When the water comes out, it's not going to be bitter one moment, and then sweet or fresh the next. Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Of course not. In other words, what James is saying, and then he says, neither can salt water produce fresh. In other words, he is saying that if you are regenerate and you are 
storing doctrine in your soul that a mature believer over here should be operating on divine viewpoint and he is not going to be producing sins of the tongue. That's what he's saying. That sins of the tongue are a contradiction to what has happened in the life of a believer. Now, he's not saying that go and sin no more. In other words, go and be perfect and don't commit sins of the tongue. He just told us no one can tame the tongue. But what he is saying is that this is an internal inconsistency in the life of the believer. And so the goal is to mastery of the tongue, and that only comes as a result of the spiritual dynamics of learning and applying doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So now that we've come down to verse 12, I want to summarize by looking at the doctrine of the sins of the tongue. Doctrine of the sins of the tongue. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, in the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 10.13 says, On the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod, that is, discipline, a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. That is, he doesn't have wisdom on his lips. Proverbs 10.14, Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. So there are definite warnings throughout the Scriptures on the sins of the tongue. So let's start off point one with some definitions. Sins of the tongue are one of three categories of sins which emanate from the sin nature. The other two are overt sins such as murder, adultery, thievery, and mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins are like bitterness, jealousy, envy, hatred, anger, fear, worry, anxiety, guilt, and self-pity. Verbal sins, that is, sins of the tongue, include gossip, maligning, If I don't hit you, just let me know after class and I'll be sure to include whatever your favorite one is. Gossip, maligning, slander, lying, false witness, telling the... Twining and complaining. Just wanted to slip that one in. I know that doesn't apply here. Whining and complaining. Psalm 34.13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. James 3.6, The tongue is a fire of the world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. That means you immediately are out of fellowship when you sin. A sin of the tongue. Sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things, all things, not some things, not most things, not the things that you enjoy doing, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Point two. The sins of the tongue are motivated and sponsored by mental attitude sins. Sins of the tongue are motivated and sponsored by mental attitude sins, especially pride, jealousy, bitterness, vindictiveness, uh, revenge motivation, and hatred. The sins of the tongue are motivated and sponsored by mental attitude sins. Psalm 5, 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. David is talking about his enemies. 
their inward part, that is all that is inside them, their mental attitude, sins, their inward part is destruction itself. And then he, this is what's called emblematic parallelism. See, in Hebrew poetry, you don't rhyme words like you do in English poetry. In Hebrew poetry, you rhyme ideas. Primarily, this is done through synonymous parallelism, where the first line is just reiterated with slightly different words by the second line. But the, another form is called emblematic parallelism, where the first line is just enhanced and taken to the next level by the second line. So this line, their inward part is destruction itself, i.e. mental attitude, sins, destroy the life, and then what results from that? Your throat, the source of mental, uh, verbal sins, is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now, flattery is just an insincere praise that comes from uh, a, a mind of em- empty arrogance. Point three. Out of the list of the seven worst sins, the seven sins that God abominates, three of them are sins of the tongue. And, you know, what's always interesting, you talk to people say, what do you think are the worst sins? And they'll list adultery and fornication and murder and genocide and, and hate crimes and child abuse. And now with our culture, uh, owning a firearm... Um, <laughs> I mean, we're just we're coming up with a whole new list of cultural sins, and Americans have historically done that. Whether it was alcohol or slavery or uh, women's suffrage in 19th century liberalism, has always generated social sins that the Bible really doesn't know anything about in terms of classifying them as sins. This is what God says: There are six things which the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to them. Now, this is a Hebraism. See, when they want to say there are seven things that really make God mad, and, or they want to emphasize that final number, they'll always say there's, there's six, then seven. There's three, then four. They're emphasizing the second number, and the way they emphasize it is by backing off one number and saying there's two, gay, three. So it doesn't mean... That, that's how you have to understand that. It's not an English metaphor, but... This is saying these are the seven sins that God abominates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Number two on the list is the sin of the tongue. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. There's our first overt sin. It's murder. A heart that devises wicked plans. Now, haughty eyes is arrogance. A heart that devises wicked plans. That's a mind that's always trying to get away with sin. Come up with wickedness. So that's also a mental attitude sense. Feet that run rapidly to evil. That's somebody who's always looking for some trouble to get into. That's an overt sin. A false witness who utters lies. It's our third sin of the tongue. Our second sin of the tongue. A false witness. This is a perjurer. This is lying under oath. That's different from just having a lying tongue. And then, and one who spreads strife. Among brothers, that's done with the mouth, with your tongue. You're causing trouble. You're creating dissension. This, of course, happens in many different congregations. So, when God lists the seven worst sins, the seven sins that that He particularly despises, three of them are sins of the tongue. Fourth, the sins of the tongue produce triple compound divine discipline. We spent a lot of time looking at this the last two classes. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 reveal this. Do not judge lest you be judged. 
So when you judge somebody else, gossip, slander, maligning, you're judging somebody else, you're warned that you will in turn be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured for you. So first of all, you're going to receive divine discipline because of the mental attitude sins that motivates the sins of the tongue. You judge somebody, you're arrogant. So you're going to get discipline for arrogance. Then you're going to get discipline for judging. And then, because you're listing all these sins that somebody else allegedly committed, you're going to uh, get penalized for that. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you. So there is triple compound divine discipline for the sins of the tongue. Point number five, judging incurs such harsh discipline because the self-righteous believer is putting himself in the place of God. That's arrogance. When I look at another believer and I'm going to judge their actions, I'm basically putting myself in the position of God and acting like God as if I'm the one, my opinion is the one that really counts and my assessment of his action is what really counts. So judging incurs harsh discipline because the self-righteous believer puts himself in the place of God and judges the actions, motives, and thoughts of others without knowing all the facts. Usually that's true. They don't know all the facts. They have a false system of standards. Usually they're very self-righteous. And therefore they justify engaging in character assassination and destroying reputations because, after all, this person has done this horrible sin. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who pass judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Romans 14.4 Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 10 of Romans 14 But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's up to God to make the judgment, not us. Point six. Continuation of the sins of the tongue, or the habitual function of the sins of the tongue, is a sign of extended carnality and rejection of doctrine in the life of a believer. So if you are continuing in these sins, then it's a sign of your own rejection of doctrine and extended carnality, and eventually the sin unto death. Psalm 12.3 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Point seven, God protects and blesses the believer who is victimized by the sins of the tongue. So if somebody is running around and they're telling a lot of stories on you and they're gossiping about you and judging you, then God is going to not only protect you, but He will also bless you. Job 5.19-21 through 21. From six troubles He will deliver you, even in seven, evil will not touch you. What did I just say about sixth and seven? The emphasis is these, these seven things, areas God will protect you. In famine He will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, neither will you be afraid of violence when it comes. Point eight. Control of the tongue is a sign of the possession of maturity in terms of the soul fortress. Now, this is the soul fortress I had up earlier, that as you grow 
and your knowledge of doctrine, you began to learn how to use the ten stress busters, and that edifies, that's the word the Bible uses, it builds up, strengthens your soul to handle adversity. In the Old Testament, use the word fortress. God is our shield, our bulwark, our fortress. So this is the soul fortress. Control of the tongue is a sign of possession of the soul fortress and spiritual maturity. Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 21.23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. So control of the tongue is a sign of spiritual maturity and that you are developing a soul fortress. Point nine, the tongue of the carnal believer can produce enough slander, gossip, maligning, judging, to destroy an entire congregation. And that's exactly what is happening in James. And he's going to get into the underlying mental attitude sins starting in James 3.13, which we'll get into next week. But the sins of the tongue can destroy an entire congregation. 2 Timothy 2.14-17. 2 Timothy 2.14-17. Point number 11. Troublemakers are always characterized by sins of the tongue. They get around, they whisper, and they talk, and they say, "Well, do you really think that? Do you really think that's right? Do you really agree with that?" And they start raising questions and causing trouble and developing dissension in a congregation. Believers are specifically commanded to avoid such troublemakers and to separate from them. Romans 16 verses 17 and 18. Romans 16:17 and 18. Point number 12, the believer can actually lengthen his life and find great inner happiness by avoiding the sins of the tongue. So this is one of the clues to longer life, Psalm 34, 12, and 13. And that's primarily because you won't suffer the sin unto death. Psalm 34, 12, and 13. Point 13, deceit and lying can be by commission or omission. Deceit or lying can be by you don't have to say it. You just you can just leave something out intentionally, and that's lying. That's deceitfulness. Proverbs four twenty four. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put devious lips away from you, because you're leaving things out in order to distort the truth. And then uh, fourteen, slander and gossip, which is running down others and telling unfavorable stories about them, which harm their reputation. Slander and gossip are to have no part in the believer's life. It's not the veracity of the stories that's the issue. The issue is telling stories that you're not involved with. Proverbs 10.18, He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Proverbs 11.9, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Point 15, whining and complaining reveal a complete lack of gratitude, failure to appreciate the blessings of God in our lives, and the vast, and failure to appreciate the vast extent of our salvation and spiritual life blessings. It's what the children of Israel did when they were delivered and freed from slavery in Egypt. They got out in the wilderness and they griped and they complained and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They had no capacity for grace. They had no capacity for all that God had done for them. And they wanted to go back into slavery. The same thing is true for most of us. Whenever we go into adversity, the temptation is to start whining and complaining about it. 
And, and that shows that we have failed to understand all that God has provided for us to handle the test. Point 16. Believers are warned against talkativeness, especially during times of adversity or testing. Your believers are warned against talkativeness. That happens with some people. You, you turn the heat up and the mouth just starts running. I don't know why that is, but the more the pressure, the more we want to talk. Somehow we think that's going to alleviate pressure. Believers are warned against talkativeness, especially during times of adversity or testing. Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips, chatters away, comes to ruin. Ecclesiastes 10.13 and 14, the beginning of his talking is folly. And the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after. Proverbs 10.19 When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And then point 17, last but not least. Taking the Lord's name in vain is often at the top of the list of sins of the tongue. Most self-righteous congregations, that's number one. Sin of the tongue, taking the Lord's name in vain. Yet, that's based on a very poorly understood and mistranslated passage in the Old Testament. In the Ten Commandments, it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. So everybody immediately thinks that means prefacing some comment with God, fill in the blank, Jesus Christ, something like that, and are just saying God or Jesus or something like that. I'm not recommending you do that. What the Ten Commandments is saying is something completely different. That's not what God put, put in the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew there for taking the Lord's name in vain is the word Shua, which looks like this in the, in the Hebrew. It's spelled S-H-U-A. Now what this means is to treat something lightly, to treat it insignificantly. To use God's name in an illegitimate, deceitful, or false manner. Now think about that. That's not simply use, using the word God. Use, attaching His name to an illegitimate practice a, in a deceitful or false manner. Basically, where the application in Israel was that this was, for, was to prohibit attaching the Lord's name, Yahweh, to a prophecy. So you're not going to say, thus saith the Lord. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, it was um, to attach the Lord's name to a course of action. So there's so many self-righteous Christians who then say, this is God's will for my life. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, folks. That's exactly what this passage is talking about is attaching the name of God to some enterprise, and you don't know with 100% certainty that that's what God wants you to do or not. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, not simply using the Lord's name in, a, in, in, in terms of some kind of profanity. Now, that would definitely be included, but I want you to understand that when this passage says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, it had something completely different and much more significant in mind than simply stopping people from saying, gosh darn or gal darn or whatever the latest phrase is. 
So it is a prohibition to attach the Lord's name to any course of action, any ideology, any religious system that is not authorized by God. And that's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord Yahweh your God in vain. For Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. In Deuteronomy 5.11, which repeats that. So that is 17 points on the doctrine of the sins of the tongue. And we'll come back next Wednesday night and start looking at the underlying issues, the mental attitude sins and the mental attitude dynamics, which fosters the sins of the tongue. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and how clear it is, how precise it is. Father, we pray that You would help us to understand how these things apply to each one of our lives and that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we would have the objectivity to see that and then apply it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.